Welcome back, press fans. Coming to you from Altman Studios in downtown Brentwood to your ears wherever you are. This is Clocked In with the Press. As always, I'm Jacob Menez, and here with me today is Oakley Police Chief Paul Beard. How you doing, Paul? Good. Thank you for having me here. Thanks for being here. Before we get into it, let's hear a quick word from this episode's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Sip and Scoop in downtown Brentwood. Sip and Scoop delivers smiles for miles, sip by sip, and scoop by scoop. Gelato, Italian ice, and signature coffee beverages are just a few of the delicious treats on their menu. Stop by Sip and Scoop at 234 Oak Street in downtown Brentwood to get your fix. They're also on DoorDash. Thanks once again to this week's sponsor. Let's dive in. So, Paul, for those who don't already know, how long have you been the police chief in Oakley? I became the interim police chief in September of uh, 2021, and I became the regular police chief in January of this year. And before that, what role did you serve in the department? I was hired in uh, May of 2016. Uh, my original role for the department was that of a detective. When I uh, arrived at the department, I, I came as the department broke off from the sheriff's office. And uh, my lieutenant at the time, Lieutenant Eric Navarro, he told me that they were adding a fourth detective and I was going to be that fourth detective. And that fourth detective was kind of designated as the special projects detective. So I got a lot of interesting cases in that respect. After that, I promoted to the role of sergeant for the Oakland Police Department in uh, February of 2017. And then I, from there, I went to uh, patrol as a sergeant and then ad- administrative sergeant. And then somewhere in uh, 2019, I believe it is, I became lieutenant and I served as lieutenant until I made chief. And so let's roll back a little bit further even. So before you were with the Oakley Police Department, where did you work? Yeah, I, I spent a full career with the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office. I started there in 1990 and again, retiring at, at, uh, in 2016 to uh, take on my employment as an Oakley detective. So you were at the Contra Costa Sheriff's Department. So were you already a, an Oakley resident prior to joining the Oakley force? I was a Brentwood resident and I still am. My family comes from this area. My family migrated here from Arkansas to Oakley in uh, 1944. So I've had a, a lifelong connection to the city of Oakley. Why did you choose to become a police officer? What inspired you to become a police officer? That's uh, that's a very easy question to answer. From the moment I was young enough, to, or, or old enough, I should say, to understand what my parents are talking about, I began to realize that my paternal grandmother was a police officer in Arizona. And uh, my, my father himself was a reserve police officer in, in Arizona. My grandmother was a deputy sheriff for the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. And she was a police officer for the Chandler Police Department. And I'm not sure which one came first. I, I forget that that aspect of it. But I do know that for the Chandler Police Department, she was the first female police officer for that department. And to, to help me close that loop a little bit, or it was a lifelong source of interest for me, was my grandmother. And she passed before I was born, so I, I never got to meet her. But in uh, 2007 or 2008, um, I took the, our, our group of explorers from the Contra Costa Sheriff's Office to Chandler, Arizona for a competition that they do for the, for the explorers. It's a competition that's open to all explorer posts across the nation. And I was very excited because I got to go to Chandler, Arizona, right? And uh, as part of just being there, I got to tour the PD. And without saying anything to anybody, I, I carried my grandmother's badge with me on the trip. And, uh, I, and I didn't really do my research into the Chandler PD at, at the time. But when I got there, I realized or I became familiar with uh, the, the chief of Chandler PD, who was a woman. And uh, so I thought it was very cool to 
show her the badge of the first female police officer to the now the chief of the of the Chandler Police Department to kind of show how far that that whole thing had gone, right? And I did find my grandmother's photo on the wall, which is really which was really cool. It's a very much a family affair then. Yes. Do you have siblings or anything that are also police officers? Just giving a bigger scope to that? I'm the only person in my family currently involved in law enforcement. I'm, I'm the one that took that bug and ran with it. <laughs> so now that you're in law enforcement, what does a typical day in the job look like for Chief Paul Beard compared to, say, Lieutenant Paul Beard? For for Chief Paul Beard, I, I have to meet the needs of a broader spectrum audience, right? I have uh, department heads I have to meet the needs for. I have all of my, my sergeants and uh, my two lieutenants and, and every other officer under, my, under me and, and non-sworn people. I have to meet those needs. And I, I try to be very diligent about receiving the emails, receiving the phone calls, and actually providing some follow-up action associated with those things. So this being a Monday morning, Mondays are always busy, right? You know, <laughs> And so Monday morning, that's what it is. I try to keep it during the weekend, but Monday morning, it, it's picking up that, the, the emails and just running hard with them. And so how does that compare to your role back when you were lieutenant? Lieutenant, I was more narrow and in, in, in focus. I was the operations lieutenant, and so I, I would just sort of handle the just the operational matters, the patrol matters that happened over the weekend or, or day-to-day operations. I would handle the various reviews that we have to do of, of things that our department does, but it was very much something that was in my wheelhouse at that time because I, I was, I've been a lifelong operational guy, you know, so my, my role has just expanded as the chief. So you've really become more the big picture guy more than anything else. Yeah. My calendar is very full, you know, I've, <laughs> I've, I've never been much of a calendar guy, you know, but uh, my, my people, I, I can't say enough about the people who I'm department heads with. They really help me line up my day and show me where I need to go and just fill my calendar with things that I really need to be doing. And now, obviously, you came into the role in sort of an abrupt way with the firing the, the uh, former police chief. So what was the hardest part about stepping into that role on such short notice? Well, the situation uh, made it made it the, the toughest thing. And that situation has been uh, well well documented. I don't see any need to really go into that right now. I will say that my, my predecessor, he was a very good mentor for me and really provided me with a lot of tools that I needed to prepare me for, for this role. Didn't see it coming, but he really did help me understand what uh, police department organization uh, was, was like. And so you've been in the role close to a year now. What would you say is your favorite part of this new role for you? My favorite role is when I hear good things about my people and things that I had nothing to do with at all. This weekend, I became aware that one of my officers received a very flattering email um, or, or the department received a very flattering email about his actions. And his action in this instance was he was dealing firsthand with a First Amendment auditor which by nature, a First Amendment auditor and a, a peace officer, it's sort of a antagonizing relationship right from the get-go. And as this whole thing played out, my officer handled it perfectly and got through all the, the bumps in the road with this, kind of, with this auditor and actually brought that auditor in to help him with an investigation, help broadcast a, a missing person that he was uh, investigating at that time. So with zero interaction uh, from me or any supervisor at all, this person that works for Oakley PD was able to showcase his positive skill sets. And I'm, I'm happy and I'm proud when I hear good things about my people.
And so for context for listeners, what is a First Amendment auditor? Just to give more context to that story. I don't have a, a full understanding of everything they focus on, but they like to come to uh, government facilities and they try to basically catch government employees not allowing them to express their First Amendment rights as citizens. And so they, they tend to push the boundaries of where they're allowed to be in a government facility. They like to record the activities of the of the government workers. They like to record inside the, if they can, inside of government vehicles and so it just sort of automatically strikes you as hey what you know what's going on here you know what are you doing it it's it looks very suspicious at right. first and, and so would you say that there's an uptick in seeing things like that over the last couple of years over the last two years there has certainly been an uptick in that uh, some of these auditors are more aggressive and obnoxious than others <laughs> The one that we dealt with in this weekend's instance was was not that at all. I truly believe that she was just trying to identify areas of concern if any are found. And I am very happy and proud to say she did not find anything with our with our officer. So with police's relationship with the public, you know, more in the public eye after the last couple of years, how does that influence the way the department operates? More public outreach. There are some things that are automatically in place for us. Like, you know, there's been these longstanding programs such as Coffee with a Cop or we have National Night Out coming up, right? And those are things I think that most departments feel obligated to do. But what does a department want to do? And those are the things that you really have to identify. What do you want to do that is over and beyond these organized events? And I feel like we have really done very well with wanting to do more for the public. We spend more time with the with the everyday resident as we are investigating their crimes. We are getting out to the schools more. It's just being more accessible and more transparent to the public. And I think we're we're getting pretty good at that right now. And do you feel that the community as a whole has kind of accepted those, has accepted you f- because of that? My personal feeling on Oakley and the and their relationship with the police department is we have always been supported. I cannot think of a time when Oakley as a general whole was suspicious of their police department or anti-law enforcement. You're always going to have individuals or maybe small groups within a community that, that express that, but the community of Oakley has always been supportive of the police department. And I, I want to make sure that the police department is supportive of the community and keep that relationship going as is. As a very symbiotic thing, obviously. Yes, absolutely. So we talked about positive elements of the job. What would you say, stepping to the role last year, since then, what's been the biggest challenge as a whole? The biggest challenge has been uh, calendar management. Um, <laughs> You know, honestly, I know what I want to get done in a day, but then I, I step in and I look at the calendar and there's no way I'm going to do this project that I really want to work on and really need to work on, right? So it is just being spread thin, torn in a couple different directions at, at a time, and then realizing if you want to get the project work done, you simply have to work long. You, know, you stay late and work long, and that's that tends to be what I do. And so when it comes to that project work, you know, you've got 12 hours of work is blocked into a 10-hour day or whatever. How do you prioritize? You simply take what's what's important right now uh, and, uh, you know, when, what's important now. And that that is my mentality to the whole thing. I know I know the long-term things that I really have to get to, but invariably something's going to pop up during the day that uh, I need to, I need to kind of forget about this long-term project and really focus on this immediate matter right now. So very, you know, there's a degree of flexibility that has to go into the job, obviously. Absolutely. This, uh, from the, from day one, this has never been a job that was uh, scripted from start to finish. You know, it's very fluid. 
Can you share with listeners a specific on-the-job anecdote that stuck with you, either as one of your proudest moments or a challenge you've recently had to overcome? I think moments of pride, for for me, uh, moments of pride have been very career-era specific. I can tell you early in my career, I was simply proud that I made it. I I was hired by the county. I made it through the academy, and I I spent my time in in jail. You know, that's the first assignment you do in the county is you you spend time in the detention uh, division. And then I came out, and I passed FTO, and I was very proud of that. I I was a patrol deputy, and I was proud of that. Then you start to realize, okay, that's not good enough. And then I became proud of individual things I had done along the way. One that does stick out early in my career, I was assigned to the contract city of Lafayette. And it was wintertime, it was a swing shift, it was completely dark, and there was a lost boy. The child, he was seven years old, he was missing from the home, and so was, so was the family dog. So the, the belief is that he took the family dog out for a walk, which, you know, very sweet and cool little thing, right? Not when it's dark. And so we spent uh, a couple hours on that looking for that boy. That was our main focus at that time. I, I literally found that boy. Uh, I heard him calling for us up on a hillside, and his dog was right near him. And I, you know, I don't know, I don't know why that moment sticks with me, but it does. I was proud to be involved with that family because they are very grateful to have their boy back. Then as the career progresses, you, you kind of get away from these, um, uh, these individual moments of pride. And what am I doing for the organization? And in the sheriff's office, I became very proud to be part of the sheriff's uh, SWAT team. I was known as a team leader on, on the team, and I was very proud to, be, to work with men and women that really were serious about the job the way I was. I was so happy to be aligned with those people and the things that we got done together. Now, at this stage of my career, you know, I'm on, I'm on the last, last leg. You know, people don't become chiefs when they're, they're brand new. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm late in the career. I've got 32 years on. At this point, I am very proud of, of how my department is acting and serving within the city and how the entire city of Oakley is coming together. And uh, there's so much interdepartmental support for one another right now. And I have had some to do with that. You know, that's been a long, a long-term desire of mine that, that we see that in the city of Oakley, but I'm really proud of my, the people that work under me, that they are, have gravitated towards that and they see the good in, in, in all of their coworkers. And that's, that's where I'm at with it right now. You know, you keep going back and talking about the people under you so positively. You know, what's your philosophy on leadership? I follow the script of being a servant leader. I, I, I do understand my role. My role is I'm at the top and everybody else, they are subordinate to me and they do work for me, but I have to work for them as well. It has to be a, a, it has to be a give and take. They have to see that I am there to support them. If I expect any amount of support out of them, they have to understand that they are supported and that they are, their back is had by me. And of course, you learned stuff like that through experience. Did you have positive leaders as you were coming up in the in your career? I did. I I had very good examples of people to look at in the sheriff's office and and Oakley as well. I you know I I think if you're lacking something in your life, there's all kinds of uh, literature out there that you can you know fill in those gaps with. And so I've I've done that as well. It's just the the personal education is such an important part. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, Chief Beard and I are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Alexis Gabe case and the department's involvement in the investigation. Stick around. Today's episode of Clocked In With The Press is brought to you by our friends at Sip and Scoop in downtown Brentwood. Sip and Scoop started out as a food truck, serving coffee, hot cocoa, and desserts on the go. But the demand was so high that they had to open a shop at 234 Oak Street. 
Here at Clocked In, we love Sip and Scoop. They're just a few doors down from our offices, and we're there often enough that they know our names and orders. It's like cheers, but better, because there's dessert. Try their cold brew coffee, or choose a latte or Americano for a classic coffee drink that can't be beat. And we haven't even talked about their breakfast sandwiches and avocado toast. Have I mentioned the root beer flows and the iced lemonades? Those are my personal favorites. <sighs> okay, obviously, I could talk about food all day, but here's the point. You gotta go to Sip and Scoop. Visit them at 234 Oak Street in downtown Brentwood or have Sip and Scoop brought to you wherever you are by DoorDash. Having an event? Let Sip and Scoop cater it. Give them a call at 925-684-7710 to find out more. Thanks once again to our sponsor. I'm here once again with Chief Beard. We're going to turn the focus of the conversation now to the Alexis Gabe case. Bear in mind, listeners, that because the case is still ongoing, not all these questions will have easy answers or answers at all, but we wanted to ask them for the sake of transparency. So, Chief Beard, what elements of the search are you able to share that have not yet been publicized? Well, I believe that we have been uh, very transparent with our efforts in the wake of the the death of, of Marshall Jones. Prior to the death of Marshall Jones, we did have to hold things tight to the chest because we were investigating, and the nature of, invest- of an investigation means that sometimes, most of the time, the agency doing the investigation has to have proprietary ownership of the information in order to make a fruitful and effective investigation. But since his passing, I think that we have been very transparent with what we've done. This question is going to be fairly straightforward and just, you know, yes or no is fine, but do you know where her body is? No, do not. And so what has perplexed you the most about this case? What's been the, the biggest confusion? Well, I think the last question, where is her body? You know, it has been all-consuming of my department to discover the, the whereabouts of Alexis Gabe. And we, we remain dedicated to that. The specific means of the how and the why and that sort of thing. If we could answer all those things, uh, we would be closer to her, to her location. But we don't have everything answered just yet. And of course, this is an aside. Over the weekend, the family did have a search for her cell phone. Was the department involved with that search in any way? Yes, we were involved because anything that does get recovered in a search like that will get turned over to us. So by just by nature, we were on standby for anything that was discovered, anything that would be considered uh, relevant or germane to the investigation. But in addition to that, it's my understanding that my weekend day shift crew actually physically got involved with the search themselves. And you anticipate anything that was recovered as part of that search being helpful to your investigation? I've not been given a complete uh, rundown of everything that was uh, recovered, but nothing was recovered that would create an aha moment for me. So missing persons cases are a regular part of the police logs that are updated weekly that, you know, we run in the paper. They're available online as well. So what made the Alexis Gabe case different from those in terms of just how much the public engaged with it? The total nature of her case uh, is what got the public so involved. You know, early on, our officers identified that this was not a a usual missing person case. And I I guess I should define a usual missing person case by me saying that. Typically, uh, we get a lot of reports of of missing people uh, regarding people that want to be missing. They they walk away on their own accord. They they are trying to get away from a situation or a relationship or they simply are just taking a, a time out from life. Their loved ones will simply call and 
report them as a missing person. And when they, when they give us all this information on the missing person, they tell us all these factors of this person's life. This person is not happy in the relationship. This person is having some trouble at work. This person has psychological issues, or this person is a chronic drug abuser. You know, those are things that we can, okay, we can start to put this case in this kind of a bucket, and this person's been listed as missing before. This is where we've found this person, and this is about how long this person stays missing when this person goes away. So Alexis Gabe uh, checked none of those boxes, and her the initial reporting of her disappearance was was very suspicious to to all of us, all of us involved in the case. So suspicious that we were coming in on our days off that day to get this investigation started. Without a body and with Marshall Jones dead, how do you get justice for what happened to her? Well, let's let's go with the scenario of uh, my child was abducted and killed. Am I ever going to get justice for that person or, or for that situation for my child's killing? God forbid that should ever happen. So I don't know that these situ- these are situations where you ever get exact justice. I have often wondered what I would do if I were the Gabes. And I I that thought process has led me to wonder is this how the Polly Class Foundation came to be? Because Polly Polly's gone. You know, Polly is no longer with us. Polly is no longer with her mom and dad. But her parents kept her memory alive by creating this foundation that would help other families, other victims, other survivors in these like situations. And I, I think I, I've always followed uh, the class family, but having them involved in our searches, it really kind of connected that, those dots and closed that loop for me that maybe this is why these foundations exist because that's the only way that you can feel that you are keeping your, your loved one's uh, memory alive. And that's maybe that's how justice is, is extracted in these situations. G- again, God forbid we're ever in this situation ourselves. And so I'd almost reframe that and, you know, replace the word justice with closure, maybe. Right. Yes. That's a good way to go with that. And speaking of the Class Kids Foundation, Mark Class, of course, was helping with the search efforts back in April, I believe. Yes. And what was his role? He was helping train un- essentially untrained volunteers. Yeah. So um, Mark Class, and I'm not going to know all the little details of it, but Mark Class himself, he has a foundation and he has people working in that foundation. And uh, the people that work in that foundation, they're very good at galvanizing groups of people, training these groups of people that are previously untrained, showing them how to work safely, what to look for, how to identify articles that we're looking for, and how to communicate those discoveries to the people that have to know. And was there overlap between them and the police department? Because I know you two were sort of running parallel, but not necessarily. Was there actual an overlap? There was a very good interface uh, between the Class Foundation and Detective Tyler Horn. Uh, Detective Tyler Horn was our point man for this investigation, and he was juggling all of these entities all at the same time. And I recall at the most, I believe his most recent press conference, you had said this was the biggest case that Oakley has had, obviously. So. Yes. And I'm going to turn back into, you know, you would just come onto the department back in September of last year. So how were you able to approach the biggest case in the city's history as, you know, new to your role? I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've handled cases like this before because I haven't. I was blessed with the sheriff's office to have had so many roles in the sheriff's office. And I, I did spend some time in investigations and I did spend time uh, looking for people that didn't want to be found, looking for evidence that nobody wanted to be found. And so having, having all that backdrop and experience really helped me help the guys uh, to, to develop a plan. That is not to take anything at all away from my guys. My guys 
already know how to investigate, you know, and they already know how to orchestrate and organize a, an effort. So it was a very collective uh, effort on all of our parts to, to make sure we did what we should be doing in those early, those early phases. I think the most um, daunting feeling was how, how big it was. And from, from the very onset, we did feel this was a big case. And thankfully, for that reason, you were able to interface with several other departments. I know there's ANIC police. What were some of the other departments that were involved? Yeah, so FBI, Amador County, Contra Costa Sheriff's Office. Those are the agencies that readily come to mind, but there were truly so many more. In what ways can the public continue to help with the investigation? The tip line is still active. Uh, that tip line, uh, just to put it out there again, is 925-625-7009. We still believe that somebody out there knows what happened. Somebody may know where Alexis is. And as more information comes out about that time frame, about where Marshall Jones had been and and just in those early stages around around uh, January 26 and 27, we believe people saw things that didn't, you know, what, it wasn't relevant then, but now it's very relevant. And so we, we just simply ask people to, first of all, keep Alexis in mind, uh, keep her memory alive, and also understand that there, there are people working for her still yet. That comes in the form of the case. So we want any, any tip that will, will help us out at this point. Do you think her body will ever be recovered? I do. I do. I do realize that there are some cases where there's never that there just aren't recoveries. But I don't think we can I don't think we should enter our our investigation with that frame of mind even with a with the with Marshall Jones no longer being with us and even with exhausting our our efforts the way we have. I think we all still need to have hope because with hope you tend to stay engaged a little bit better. Taking the hope element out of it, I just still feel as if we will recover Alexis at some point. This is a very pointed question, but do you believe that if Marshall Jones were still alive, that you would have had that you'd have an easier time recovering the body? For the longest time, I realized that Marshall Jones, he was a investigative avenue for us. How much of an avenue he was going to be for us, that was going to be decided by him. So it's it's really kind of difficult to to answer that. But obviously, with without having him here, it does close the door. If you don't mind me asking, how early in the investigation was it determined that he was the primary person of interest? We we did a broad spectrum look early on, and as the as the investigation wore on, I'm not kind of exact dates uh, for this discussion, but as the investigation wore on, we were simply able to eliminate everybody else from her that were that was in her life as being a potential suspect in in her disappearance. So I would say it it took a it took a good chunk of time. It took a few weeks. And so speaking a little bit more broadly than you said, it eliminated the other people in her life. So typically when it comes to an investigation like this, it's usually someone that knows the person. It's never, it's rarely a random act of violence. Yeah, I've, I've investigated random acts, but typically, and most of the time, it is a known suspect. How many officers are in the Oakleta Police Department and how many of them are devoting resources to this case, you know, right now? So I have 34 officers in the department right now from top to bottom. I have uh, several officers out on injuries right now. Nobody on training right now. So that means everybody under our employee is, is off training. So that means they're available to us. So the, having those injuries in play, it does knock your numbers down a little bit. At the height of this case, I had between 7 and 10 
officers assigned uh, to this case. I, I should say between, it was about seven officers, and then I had three other non-sworn people with a heavy hand in this investigation. So I would say uh, roughly one-third of the department was actively engaged with, with this investigation. How was the department juggling that case with, without straining the workload of the department as a whole on other stuff happening in town? I don't know if I should say luckily or not, but uh, luckily this was the biggest investigation going at the very same time. We did have another major incident in the city that I requested the assistance of the sheriff's office to come in and help us out with. Luckily they did, and I really appreciate the efforts and the and the investigation they put forth to, to help us out. So it really did become a, a situation of prioritizing what's important now, what can wait, and if it's important now, how what do we have to do to get it done? And sometimes the sometimes that mechanism came in the form of having to reach out and ask for help. Is the department taking a more hands-off role now that we've gotten further down the road? Now that the investigation is turning more towards the pioneer area as well, with the revelation of the uh, the handwritten note by Marshall Jones. Um, we're not hands-off, but we through this investigation, through this collaborative effort of multiple agencies, we have uh, realized that this is a Antioch venue uh, investigation. They are now the host agency, if you will. So we are now acting in a, in a support role to the Antioch Police Department. I still have Detective Tyler Horn actively engaged in every aspect of the case. He regularly interacts with uh, the, with the Antioch detectives, and they, I, I'm assuming they trade notes every day, uh, but I factually know it happens every week. And is Detective Horn still actively involved in communicating with the Gabe family, with Gwen Gabe? Uh, yes, he is. He was, uh, as I understand it, he was in communication with them this weekend. Gwen has been you know, instrumental in galvanizing the community to help locate his daughter. Has that been a huge help for the department? It has. The, the Gabe family, and I, I said this in one of the press conferences, it, it remains true today. It's it's just going to remain true for forever. I have been very impressed with the Gabe family. They The way they have been able to um, live their life in the not in the not only in the wake of what's happened, but in the moment of what was happening. Because when she was missing, she was still out there and alive somewhere, right? We, and that was the that was the mission. That was the focus to get to find Alexis alive and bring her back home. Uh, to find a family that have such strong and deep family roots is just amazing to me. And they have been nothing but beneficial to the department and the investigation. And do you think that they're, how present they were on social media and everything, do you think that's part of why the public latched on this case so much? And we talked about what makes us different from other missing persons cases. Do you think that was a factor? I, I do. I do. Uh, everything is, uh, if it's not on social media, today it didn't happen right and that, that, even though that's that's a factually untrue statement but because uh, so pe so many people are, are so engaged with their social media platforms uh, to see this story come up time and time and time again and then to hear about what the story is a normal shall I say missing woman and again normal being not that person who runs away frequently not a person with psychological problems not a person with drug addictions that sort of thing just somebody that we can we can all relate to we can all relate to to Alexis Gabe so that just kind of you know when you hear that enough on social media it just kind of sucks you into the investigation and the public interest level I want to clarify one more thing I know you'd said it in one of the press conferences but for listeners what was the deciding factor that determined this was no longer a search for a living missing person? Mm -hmm. So I'd have to jog my memory to reflect back on the things that we discovered during our investigation, but it really came down to a totality of circumstances. This was a a normal uh, woman, young woman. She digitally just disappeared. Uh, no bank records, no cell phone records, no, nothing like that. 
And prior to her disappearance, prior to late January, that was just part of her normal life, just like we've discussed in this interview. You know, social media is, is normal to everybody. You know, using your bank card is normal to everybody. She just digitally disappeared. That combined with the note, uh, the, the note that is now out there, uh, combined with other pieces of evidence and information, just led us to believe that she was uh, the victim of a homicide. I've got one last question. Where does the budget come from for some of these search efforts? For example, Gwen had mentioned on social media that it cost the city $15,000 to drain a pond in the Pioneer area. Was that $15,000 that come from Oakley's budget or from Pioneer's budget, I guess would be the first question. Yeah, at that time we were the host agency, so that was our responsibility. So I had to uh, juggle our budget and I had to uh, shift money uh, from different line items and uh, you know pool some other money together just to make make sure that that action did take place. Before we bring this home, was there anything else about either about the Alexis Gabe case or just about yourself that you feel we haven't had touched on that listeners might like to hear? I think we talked enough about me early on. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not a big uh, self-talker. I, I would want the uh, Oakley community and the East County community at large to know that the Oakley Police Department is progressing. Uh, we are on a constant hiring mission. I am very happy with all of our re- recent new hires. I think I have hired six people since I've been chief. And they are people from very diverse backgrounds, very diverse levels of experience. And I'm, I am not, I, I feel resolved in every single one of those decisions. And if this trend continues, which is my goal to make this trend can continue to hire the, the best officers out there, the Oakley community will just be better served by their police department. That's it for today's episode of Clocked In With The Press. We appreciate you taking the time to listen in, and we look forward to speaking with you in future episodes. I'd like to thank Chief Beard once again for taking the time to join me this week. Thank you once again. Thank you. Good to be here. I'd also like to thank you, the listeners. If you'd like to read more stories about East Contra Costa County, you can do so on our website at www.thepress.net or through our Twitter and Instagram at PressClockedIn. Be sure to tune in this Friday for your local news and sports highlights. And as always, contact us with your thoughts on this episode or any other before it by emailing podcasts at brentwoodpress.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. This is Jake and Paul clocking out. Thanks again to this week's sponsor, Sip and Scoop. Remember that feeling of hearing the ice cream truck coming down the street as a kid? Bring back that feeling by visiting Sip and Scoop. They started out as a truck too, and now they have a brick and mortar shop right here in Brentwood, so you don't have to chase them down the block. Sip and Scoop has all kinds of high-quality desserts to satisfy any sweet tooth. Gelato, root beer floats, and iced coffees are just a few of my favorites. And the whole menu is available to go on DoorDash. Stop by their shop in downtown Brentwood and get your scoop on.